If you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, you are an overcomer. Overcomers are not some elite group, sort of seal force of Christians. Overcomers is every believer. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part 10 of his series titled The Seven Churches of Revelation. Last time we began to look at the fifth letter found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the letter to the church in Sardis. You discovered that the great sin of the church in Sardis was appearing as being spiritually alive, but in reality, being spiritually dead. Today, Tom will continue to examine some of the lessons from the church in Sardis for you today. You'll discover that there are still Christian churches today that appear to be spiritually alive, but are in fact dead. The question of importance is, how to know what condition your church is in and the state of your own soul. As Tom will teach, there are individuals connected to Christian churches who appear to be alive spiritually, but are in fact spiritually dead. Yet there is hope for all who repent and return to God's Word. There is hope for churches that are mostly dead. Let's join our teacher to find out more on The Word Unleashed. Christ tells this church, that if it wants to have life again, it needs to remember the scripture that it received in its early days and the priority of teaching that scripture to its members. Remember, remember what used to be important to you as a church. Remember the scripture. That's why you're dead. It's because you've abandoned the word of God. The fourth priority is keep. This too is a present imperative demanding constant activity. Now notice there's no object. The word it is added by the translators. So it just says, and keep. There's no object to the verb, but it's obvious that Christ is referring back to the truths that they had received and heard. Keep the truths that you've, you, you received in the Scripture and that you heard taught in explaining that Scripture in your church. Keep them. Now the word keep has two nuances. It means on the one hand to guard and on the other hand, it means to obey. And I think both of those are implied here together. So what Jesus is saying is once you remember, once you recover the scripture in your church, once you begin teaching the scripture again, and you remember the treasure that you have received, keep on guarding it and keep on obeying its truths. The final imperative is repent. Verse three says, and repent. That really sums up the other four imperatives. What Jesus is saying is that this church must change its thinking and behavior by waking up, strengthening the things that remain, remembering the truth that they had received, and guarding that truth and obeying it. Now, those five imperatives explain how this church must change, but next, Christ explains why, and he does so by giving them a warning of coming judgment. Verse 3 goes on to say, therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. If the church in Sardis failed to repent 
and they failed to remain spiritually alert, then Christ threatened to come like a thief in the night, suddenly, unexpectedly, devastatingly. Now, some think that Christ is referring here to the second coming, but notice he says, if you don't repent, I will come. Now, clearly, the second coming would happen whether the church in Sardis repented or not. It's not tied to that. And he also says something very interesting, I will come to you. It seems to be more specific. So the coming in this verse is more likely a sudden, unexpected coming of Christ in judgment to destroy this church. It's just like what he said to the church in Ephesus. Go back to chapter 2, verse 5. Remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you. And, and this is very specific. I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. In other words, I'm gonna, you're going to cease to exist as a church. The light is going to be turned off. I think that's exactly what he's saying to the church in Sardis. Christ adds to this church, notice, and you will not know at what hour I come to you. If this church failed to wake up, the same thing. Think about this. What Jesus is really saying, if you don't wake up, if you don't get on your guard, if you don't remember what you learned from the Scripture before and start teaching it again and get back into those priorities, then the same thing is going to happen to you as a church that happened to your city. I'm going to come suddenly, quietly, in the night, and you are going to be unexpectedly destroyed. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? I mean, here is, a, here is a church that Jesus calls the church, and yet it's mostly dead people, spiritually dead people. But Christ includes in his letter a commendation of true believers. Finally, we get a little breath of relief. Verse 4, but, and, and in Greek, that's, a, that's not the normal word for but, it's a strong adversative. He's saying, but in contrast to the people in verse 3, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. In other words, there were a few genuine believers in Sardis. Notice Christ describes them as those who have not soiled their garments. This, too, is an interesting reference to the city. I didn't mention it to you when I described the city, but Sardis was famous for its dyeing of wool. In fact, they claimed to have been the first to discover the art of dyeing wool. They had a large garment manufacturing industry in the city of Sardis. So this image would have struck home with them. But it also would have struck home in another way. Archaeologists have found inscriptions in Asia Minor where these churches were located that stress that when it came to the worship of the pagan gods, dirty clothing dishonored the deity and disqualified the worshiper. I think Jesus is saying, there are some there who are not dishonoring me and who are not disqualified to worship. Because the true believers in Sardis had remained true to Christ and the gospel, they are described here as not having soiled their garments. Now, there's a lot of debate about what these garments are, but it seems to me since all the Christians are described as not having soiled their garments, I'm simply not convinced that Christ is describing holiness or purity only. That's possible, and there are many commentators who take it that way. But I think I have to agree with those who take this to mean that these true Christians in Sardis remained committed to the true gospel. They were, they were justified by the true biblical gospel. They were 
dressed in white, their garments were unsoiled. In response, Christ promises these justified believers that they will one day be glorified. Verse 4, and they will walk with me in white. I take this as referring to these believers who have already been justified and who have kept to the purity of the gospel, being glorified and being with Christ forever. And he adds in verse 4, for they are worthy. It doesn't mean these believers or any believers merit justification and glorification. None of us do. It's all grace from beginning to end. Rather, he's simply saying they're worthy in the sense that they haven't abandoned their simple faith in Jesus Christ and his gospel. The final part of this letter is the conclusion. It's an exhortation to each believer. First of all, you have, as you do in each of the letters, a call to overcome. Verse 5 says, he who overcomes. Now, it's been a while since we studied Revelation, so let me just remind you, if you are a Christian, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, you are an overcomer. Overcomers are not some elite group, sort of seal force of Christians. Overcomers is every believer. That's what John himself says back in 1 John chapter 5. Look at it with me. 1 John chapter 5 Verse 4, for whatever is born of God, notice that, whatever, or we could say whoever or whomever is born of God overcomes the world. How? How can puny me overcome the world? This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So get it in your head overcomers are not something, if you're a Christian, you need to aspire to. An overcomer is who you are by virtue of your faith in Jesus Christ. Every believer is an overcomer, and every believer will endure and will inherit all of the promises made in all seven of these letters to those who overcome. These are your rewards. These are your gifts, Christian. In this letter, Christ makes three promises to true believers, to those who overcome. First of all, he tells us that he will give every believer his perfect righteousness and holiness. Look at verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. Notice the word thus. I think he's referring back to what he said a moment ago when he said, they will walk with me in white. He's talking about the same thing. This isn't something different. It's just made here in the, in the context of the overcomer to say, this is my promise to you. This is going to happen. Those who wear the white robes of Christ's righteousness today will one day be glorified and wear the white robes of his perfect holiness and purity. You realize, Christian, that someday, not only will your moral character be like Christ for a day, for a year, for a century, for a millennium, but you will be like Christ forever. And the beauty of that is it means he is not only going to save you from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, but he's going to save you from the possibility of sin. You won't be able to, to sin for all eternity. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. Secondly, Christ will give every believer's salvation, will keep, I should say, every believer's salvation eternally safe and secure. 
Verse five goes on to say, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. Now, this picture of the book of life resonated with believers in the first century for two reasons. First of all, because it was something that happened in their contemporary culture. First century cities kept written records of the citizens of that city. When a person was convicted of serious crimes, his name was removed, erased from the record of the citizens of that city. He lost his citizenship. But I think this picture is even more profound because it's used in both the Old and the New Testaments. Here it is in the Old Testament, the book of life. It starts in Exodus chapter 32. You remember after the golden calf incident, Moses says, but now, Lord, if you will, forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. The Lord said to Moses, I'm not going to do it. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now, there's a lot of debate about what book this is. Some say this is not the Lamb's book of life. This is merely the book of physical life. And the one who sins, God says, I'm going to deal with him, and he's going to die physically. That's possible. But I think it's possible it has this larger context in view. Psalm 69, 28 says, may they be blotted out. Speaking of God's enemies, may they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. And then in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Speaking of the future salvation of Israel at the end of the great tribulation. Here are the New Testament references in Luke 10, verse 20. You remember the the disciples came back so excited about all that they were able to accomplish on their ministry trip. And Jesus said, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Philippians 4.3, Paul says, my fellow workers, those two women you remember who were having trouble getting along, they are my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Hebrews 12.23 speaks of, of all believers in heaven, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Revelation 20 verse 15 describes eternal life or eternal death is based on whose name appears in the book of life. And in Revelation 21, 27, it's actually called the Lamb's book of life. I think all of this becomes clearest in Revelation 13, 8, because Revelation 13, 8 explains how one comes to be written in the book of life. Look at what John writes. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. That is obviously the Antichrist uh, at the prompting of the false prophet. Who will? Everyone whose name has not been written, notice this, from the foundation of the world. How do you get in the Lamb's book of life? You get in there by sovereign grace. It happened before you were born, before us, to use Romans chapter 9, before you'd done anything good or bad. And notice who've not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. The only way anybody gets into the book of life is because of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. So it's by sovereign grace alone, through the work of Christ alone, and as we learn throughout the New Testament, it's by our faith in that work of Christ alone. Sadly, many read back to Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, 
Many are, read Revelation 3, 5, and they argue, you can read it, pick up a commentary, various things. You'll read that they argue that this verse teaches exactly the opposite of what it says. They say, you can be erased from the book of life. The very fact that he says, I, I won't blot these out of the book of life, I won't erase them, means he has the prerogative to erase others. Folks, that's, that's not what Christ says. He explicitly says that he will not erase the names of the overcomers, those who keep on believing in him. And the reason we keep on believing in him is because of God's sovereign choice by grace alone to write our names in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Be consistent with what the scripture teaches. God, Ephesians 1.3, excuse me, 1.4 says, God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world in order that we might eventually enjoy adoption. So understand, you can't be erased from the Lamb's book of life. This is actually a figure of speech where you make the positive note by saying it negatively. Christ is personally guaranteeing that he will keep the salvation of every believer safe and secure forever. I will never blot your name out of the Lamb's book of life. The third promise that Jesus makes to true believers is that he will confess every believer as his own. Verse 5 says, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. You, you remember, even during his ministry, he said similar things. And in Matthew 10, 32, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I also will confess him before my father who is in heaven. Luke chapter 12, verses 8 and 9, he says the same thing. And he says the negative, if you deny me, then that is you not one time like Peter or on a, one occasion, but perpetually you deny the Lord Jesus Christ, then he will deny you before the angels of God, he says. But notice here he says specifically that he will confess. That word confess in this context has a legal judicial sense. He's talking about the judgment. And at the judgment, folks, at the final judgment, Jesus is not a witness He's the judge and jury. All judgment has been given to the Son, he said. So what he's really saying here is he is promising on the day of judgment that he will confess every true believer to be his. He'll do it to the angels, and most importantly of all, he'll do it to the Father. Father, that one, that one's mine. You gave him to me. You gave her to me before the foundation of the world. And I came into this world to redeem them. And I promised I wouldn't lose one of them. And I've guaranteed that those who overcome by their faith, who continue to believe in me, that every single one of them, I will confess as mine before you, Father. That one's mine. Christ concludes this letter with a call to listen. Verse 6 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is like our Lord's common statement in the Gospels. It's a challenge to every person who hears or reads these letters, this letter included, to pay close attention to what the Spirit is continually saying to all the churches through his word. Folks, this is a call from Christ to every Christian and every church to hear every letter. Are you hearing? Are you hearing what Christ is saying? So what are the enduring lessons from Sardis? from this letter Christ dictates to the church in Sardis. Let me give you several. 
as we conclude our time. First of all, there are still Christian churches that appear to be spiritually alive but are dead. Don't be deceived. Don't be naive. Don't run past, you know, drive past a church and say, wow, look how many people are there. Look how busy they are. Look at all they're doing. There are still churches like Sardis. It's just as real a problem today as in the first century. One writer puts it this way, many churches, even entire denominations, have so compromised their beliefs and practices by accommodating to the fads of the intelligentsia or the ways of the world that they have virtually ceased to be Christian. So don't be, don't be naive, don't be gullible. Secondly, you can recognize spiritually dead churches by the fact that their leaders have allowed them to neglect and even forget the treasure received in the scripture and its teaching. How do you know if a church is filled with a bunch of dead people? Look at how the word of God is handled. Because remember, it's through the word of God that people are brought to spiritual life. You see that in James 1, you see that in Peter, where, there's, where the word isn't handled and taught. There's nothing, there's, there's, no, there's no seed for the spirit to use. And so you end up with a church filled with dead people that's just playing church. Looks impressive, but Christ will hold the leaders personally responsible for the destruction of those churches. Thirdly, there are individuals connected to Christian churches who appear to be alive but are spiritually dead. It saddens me to think about that. It's possible to believe the right facts and be dead. It's possible to have made a profession of faith in Christ and be dead. Tragically, many have a name that they are alive, but they're dead. They attend Christian churches. They claim to be Christians. Their friends think they're Christians. Their parents think they're Christians, but they're spiritually dead. You say, well, Tom, that's a little disconcerting. How do I know? Number four, you can recognize dead professions by the person's response to Scripture. It's very interesting. I wish I had time and I've used my time. I wish I had time to take you to Matthew 7 because in Matthew 7, Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount by saying, look, there are gonna be many at the day of judgment who say, well, Lord, wait a minute, let me in. I know you. And I'm gonna say, I never knew you. And you know, I used to live in fear of, Lord, is it me? Is is it I? Of course, that's a normal concern for us to have. Lord, could, could I be one of those? And the answer is, Jesus makes it very clear who they are. Keep reading in that passage because he goes on to say, I will say to them, depart from me, you who work lawlessness. Do you love Christ and his word and do you obey it? He goes on to tell those, those, the story, you remember, of the two men who built their houses differently. Same house, looked like the same house, but one was built on a rock and one was built on sand. And of course, the floods came, in other words, judgment came, and one house, one Christian life stood, and the other was destroyed. You say, what's the difference? It's the rock. So you tell me, in that parable, what's the rock? Nine people out of 10 will say, it's Christ. You're wrong. Christ is the rock in other places, but not in that story. Read it. Jesus says, the one who built his house on the rock was the one who heard, who heard my words and did them. And the one who built his house on the sand was the one who heard my words and did not do them. So you don't have to wonder whether or not you're gonna be one of those at the judgment. We're taking the test in 1 John. One of those tests is, do you obey Jesus Christ and his word? That's what he says at the end of Matthew 7. If you do, then yours is not a dead profession. If you don't, it is. And then finally, 
There's hope for churches, some of you will love this, that are mostly dead. Not entirely dead, but mostly dead. About 90 years later, after this letter to the church in Sardis, there was a man who was a famous Christian apologist that belonged to the church in Sardis. His name was Melito. Melito even wrote the earliest known commentary on select passages from the book of Revelation. The fact that this man served in the church of Sardis 80 years later, 80, 90 years later, gives us great hope. This is Christ's message to dead Christianity. Remember the scripture. Remember the scripture. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 10 of The Seven Churches of Revelation. We hope you'll join us next time for part 11. Well, friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You'll find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.